This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. Do you keep a garden journal? I'm wondering because I try to, but frequently fall short of anything like a standard of quality or frequency of entries. When I was a young adult going to school in the Northeast, I would sometimes house and garden sit for my uncle and aunt. He was, by profession, a landscape architect, and she an avid gardener. It was a big old place in the rural outskirts of Boston, not far from my grandparents and where my father had grown up. The first time I came to take care of the house and garden while they were traveling, my aunt showed me around the various parts of the garden, pointing out which plants were inopportunely planted just beyond the established irrigation and you had to watch out for, or where the gopher were showing up, this kind of thing. After that, my uncle showed me his large bound garden journal in which he marked the temperature, the humidity, the precipitation, and the sunrise and sunset for each day. When he was there, he also documented happenings in the garden, plantings, additions, deaths, tree fells, that kind of thing. I was amazed. The gardener in my family of origin was my mum, and while she intermittently kept a lovely but kind of scattered journal of her last garden later in her life, she had not kept a formal garden journal while I was growing up gardening with her. I'd never seen anything like this. I was duly impressed. And I have aspired to such organization and detail ever since. But aspirations being what they are, and our own human natures being what they are, I have evolved into falling somewhere in the middle of my mother and my uncle in terms of garden journal keeping. So I kind of keep one, but no one should bet the bank on me being able to quickly find the name of that plant, the nursery at which I obtained it, or the cost or weather at the time which is fine for me. But what becomes more and more clear to me as I grow older and have created and moved on from more and more gardens is that gardens are ephemeral art at best. We know this. Even long-established, well-cared-for, and culturally significant gardens are always changing with time and trends and more time, which again is the nature of life But something important is gained in documentation of such details over time. Context, perspective, the ability to track patterns over time and space, environmental and cultural patterns and trends. This ability to track and see patterns can serve to increase awareness, and awareness increases understanding, and understanding increases appreciation and valuing. So thank goodness people like my uncle and organizations and groups in the world seem built to document and help us better track, understand, and appreciate some of these things we value dearly. For us in the gardening world, we can be ever grateful to the work of botanic and other university and public gardens to open homes, to horticultural libraries, to herbariums, to garden clubs and plant societies and others for their documenting, collecting, and cataloging of valuable garden history. 
One of the most esteemed, perhaps, of these would be our own venerable Smithsonian Institution in Washington, D.C. Over the past year of Cultivating Place interviews alone, we've heard references to the importance of the Smithsonian Gardens archives for the research of such historians, writers, and gardeners as Marta McDowell while she was writing All the President's Gardens, as Andrea Wolfe while she was writing The Founding Gardeners and The Invention of Nature, and Ryder Zybarth as she was working to document and preserve five generations of her family working and gardening on one piece of land. This past May, the Smithsonian Gardens, a branch of the Smithsonian Institution dedicated to enriching the Smithsonian experience through exceptional gardens, horticultural exhibits, collections, and education, launched a new exhibition entitled Cultivating America's Gardens. The exhibition will be on view at the National Museum of American History through August of 2018. In honor of our country's birthday this week and the hand-in-hand role gardens play in the history of our country, this week on Cultivating Place, I'm pleased to be joined via video by the curator of the exhibit, Kelly Crawford. In the second half of today's program, we'll be joined by Cindy Brown, Manager of Education and Collections Management at Smithsonian Gardens, to learn more about the garden's ongoing mission and activities. Happy birthday to the United States of America seems to me an exhibit celebrating our shared garden history is a perfect birthday present. Welcome, Kelly. Thank you. What was your background that brought you to this work? I started my career at Smithsonian in 2002. I supported research on the history of the Smithsonian and uh, but my background is in art history um, and also in museum studies. I've been working uh, for Smithsonian Gardens for about almost 10 years now, um, 15 years at Smithsonian. And um, I'm a museum specialist at Smithsonian Gardens and I manage the photographic collections and artifacts pertaining to the history of horticulture and gardening in America. Primarily my responsibilities are you know, cataloging, photographic images, cataloging artifacts, doing research on them, answering questions from researchers. My primary responsibility is doing research on the collection and and making them accessible to the public. Mm -hmm. So clearly the new exhibit, Cultivating America's Gardens, is just one of many exhibitions you all as a team develop and put on. About how many exhibits specific to Smithsonian Gardens does the institution put on maybe every year? The Archives of American Gardens, which is a program that's managed by Smithsonian Gardens, um, doesn't actually have any exhibition space here at Smithsonian. Mm -hmm. Our primary vehicle for exhibitions are traveling exhibitions. So this exhibition, which we have collaborated on with Smithsonian Libraries, uh, is a real treat for us because we are able to showcase our collections inside the museums, which is a, is a rare opportunity for us. You know, most of our exhibitions are the garden spaces outside each of the Smithsonian museums mm-hmm. here in Washington. 
So what was the, given that this is sort of a novelty, what was the catalyst for the team taking on this current exhibit about American gardens over time? I think that the the catalyst really was to show the breadth and depth of garden-related collections between the Smithsonian Libraries and Smithsonian Gardens, specifically the collections in the Archives American Gardens. And what is the aim of this exhibit, and who do you see as its target audience? You know, the target audience are really garden enthusiasts, you know, anybody interested in gardens. But we tried to make it more broadly accessible because, you know, the National Museum of American History, they get several million visitors every single year. And so we, we tried to incorporate objects, books, you know, something that something for everyone. Mm-hmm. And, you know, gardening is a very universal activity. And I think it's something that it crosses all segments of society. It, it crosses all cultures. And, you know, here at Smithsonian, we have visitors from, from everywhere. So I think that if you love gardens, you're going to love this exhibition. Yeah. Um, but I think that if you're coming in to see the ruby slippers, you might also take away some kernels of information that you didn't know necessarily before. Yeah. I really liked the way that the exhibition is organized around some of these broader themes in gardening. You know, the first section is gardening for science, and this is covering botany and botanists and botanic gardens and the early explorer collections like Lewis and Clark. And then it goes on to these other broad categories of the development of the suburban garden and gardens being used to impress people or welcome people. And and then it covers victory gardens and as a link to the past, how our gardens connect us. And I really found that to be very useful because it is such a broad topic. I think on the, the Smithsonian Gardens website, it indicates that something like 30 million people visit the gardens themselves along the mall each year. How many people do you expect to visit an exhibit like this, Kelly? The American History Museum has a visitorship of about three or four million Mm -hmm. people a year. Whether or not every single one of them steps into this exhibition over the next year and a half, one can only guess. The entrance to the exhibition is very alluring. There's this larger-than-life trade card of a carrot man in a top hat, which is illuminated from the back. And I've noticed that a lot of people gravitate to the exhibition. I'm surprised every time I go in there how many people are in there. And it's, you know, it's such a delight. One thing in particular that has been mentioned multiple times is this comic book in the Victory Garden section, the golf clubs in the suburban lawn section. And also there is an interactive book that of contest letters from a 1924-1925 contest that uh, the Burpee Company held, where visitors can read handwritten letters. They're also typed up as well, little excerpts that provide, you know, a little window into our gardening past. How long were you working on the research and development to put this together? From start to finish, probably about three years. Yeah. Two years intensely, I would say. It is sort of an ambitious project to try to put all of American gardening history into a 900-square-foot space. As you 
mentioned before, you know, we sort of tied together uh, the history of American gardens under these various umbrellas, food, beauty, science, prestige, and you do get a sense of motivations of American gardeners Mm -hmm. and also that many of the ideas that we think are new today are actually not, Mm -hmm. you know, they just come in different forms. Yeah. Are you a gardener yourself, Kelly? I am. I'm a home gardener and uh, I garden with my children and uh, my mother-in-law is also, she's always, always over in my garden. For you, having this impulse yourself and and doing this with your children and having the shared history with your mother-in-law and having worked on this exhibition for such a a long period of time, what are the most engaging or fun highlights for you of the exhibit? Gosh, there, there are just so many. Every single case has something that I love about it um, that had to be included and couldn't be cut. That must have been hard, the editing down, but just the fun of going through the institution's collections of books and artifacts and just the visual richness of what is there must have been such a pleasure to work with. Absolutely. It was so much fun. There were objects and books and archival materials that I knew about, but it was those items that just came up in the course of research or even just stumbling upon, Mm -hmm. which were the most exciting. Give us an Uh, example of that. Sure. Uh, There is a video monitor uh, in the exhibition at the far back wall of um, children gardening at the, in Anacostia here in Washington, D.C. I just happened to stumble upon a reference to this school gardening project. I came across one individual image of these kids, which was just so fantastic. And in doing some research, I contacted the archivist over at Anacostia Museum, and she uncovered the whole negative role of all of these children. Oh, wow. So we ended up digitizing about half of them and putting them on a loop on this video monitor. Describe what they look like a little bit. They're elementary school age kids in the early 1980s and they're with their school teacher and they're working in the garden, they're eating vegetables. Uh, They just have this look of joy and happiness digging in the dirt. And it it doesn't look staged at all. There's that one photo that I came across that is definitely that group shot, but there are a lot of action shots of them in the garden, and it's a delightful set of photographs. What we weren't able to exhibit was a recording of them talking about gardening in Anacostia, and then also they talk about their own grandparents and godparents, you know, gardening. Mm -hmm. We tried to add that backstory into the exhibition. And I think that image of the children joyfully engaged in the activity of gardening and and the playful part of it and the, you know, eating food and engaging with each other in this outdoor setting, like somehow that kind of captures that universal impulse to to garden that Smithsonian Gardens dedicated to preserving. Is there anything else you would like to share about about the exhibition, about your experience developing it, about anything you you love or want to share about it? 
You know, I really hope that the exhibition encourages visitors to get involved in making home gardens or getting involved in their green spaces within their communities. Yeah. And given the the range of subject, I I definitely think they, they will, if not get out and get involved themselves, at least appreciate the value of those elements in their own communities across the country, right? Yes, definitely. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being on the program and for your long, hard work on this exhibition. I'm really looking forward to seeing it. Thank you so much, and thank you for having me. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. In this week of our nation's birthday, we're celebrating American garden history with Smithsonian Gardens and their new exhibition on view now at the National Museum of American History. The exhibition is entitled Cultivating America's Gardens. So fun, right? Stay with us. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back after a break to speak more with Kelly Crawford, museum specialist and curator of the new exhibition entitled Cultivating America's Gardens, on view now at the National Museum of American History. We're back to hear more about the development of such exhibits at the Smithsonian. Cindy Brown is the manager of the Education and Collections Management at Smithsonian Gardens. Welcome to the program today, Cindy. Thank you. It's a delight to be here. We started the program by talking to your colleague, Kelly, about the specific development of the new exhibition, Cultivating America's Gardens. So let's start off with you. Tell us a little bit about your background and what brought you to this work at Smithsonian Gardens, Cindy. Oh, boy. It's a, it was a long trail. But I started out in the garden when I was young. In fact, my given name is Cynthia, and my grandmother, who was a gardener, used to call me Porcynthia, just like the bush, Porcythia. <laughs> so she told me I was born to garden, which I, I love playing in the dirt, but didn't know about being a horticulturist. So I went to school to become a chemist and then a gerontologist. So even now, and then I went back to school to, to get my degree in horticulture. So I'm really good with old plants that have a chemical dependency. <laughs> <laughs> That is fabulous. I think I have a couple of those plants in my garden, by the way. So how long have you been there at Smithsonian Gardens? About seven years. I've been working in a public garden for almost 20 years now and before that in a nursery. So it really has been my career and Mm -hmm. it's been a delight going from just digging in the dirt all the way up to uh, now working and educating others in about horticulture and about gardening, which I love to do. I I like to get dirty, but I also like to tell everybody about what's going on in the dirt. 
Yeah. Talk about the Smithsonian Gardens and its history as being part of the Smithsonian and what its mission is and how it carries some of that mission out. Okay, that's that was before my my time here, but I've heard many stories, and we had a delightful secretary, Secretary Ripley, that decided that the outside of the museum should be as engaging as the inside. So he uh, asked that we start tending the gardens, the grounds uh, around the museums, and it has. We faced many challenges, and we have morphed to what we are now, which is an extension of the museums outside. So that out, bringing all the museums, we have gardens that enhance the message of the museum, as well as the message that we are trying to uh, share with our visitors and, and with the world, actually, because mm-hmm. we have international visitors as well. And that is to engage inspire and educate the visitors at the Smithsonian. It is a wonderful place to be able to engage people with ideas of what they can do to uh, tend their own gardens, but also on bigger conversations like pollinators. So we engage visitors, we inspire them with our beauty because it is a gorgeous collection of gardens. Uh, People go outside to be able to rest. The museums tend to be noisy and very busy, but you can always find that spot in the garden to uh, do some mental uh, readjusting and relaxing and just rejuvenating yourself before you either go back to learn more inside of the museums or go back to your job because we have a lot of our staff uh, at the Smithsonian go outside and enjoy the gardens. And then, of course, my job and many of us is to educate so that uh, people pick up these little tidbits, which is probably my favorite part of of it all, of course. Yeah, yeah. How many individual gardens comprise the entirety of the outdoor gardens included? We have 12 gardens, and that's including an entirely indoor garden. It is the courtyard that bridges the National Museum of American Art and the National Portrait Gallery. It is encased with this beautiful glass ceiling, and it has uh, retaining beds, raised beds that are filled with tropical plants that survive in that type of condition. Mm-hmm. In fact, that's going to be the site for our uh, 2017 orchid exhibit. So we're very excited uh, about the uh, possibilities in that space. Yeah. I want to come and visit. Oh, that was gorgeous. The oh. lighting in there is spectacular. Oh, I bet. And when the orchids and go in, I can't wait. I want to come. Yeah. <laughs> oh, come. We'll show you around. Okay, good. <laughs> I am just assuming that each that the gar- the gardens as they now exist have evolved and developed and accumulated over time that uh, when Smithsonian Gardens was uh, first founded as a, a branch of Smithsonian in 1972 that you know maybe there were one or two gardens and now there are more and perhaps more planned for the future is that accurate yes i'll go back to how they have changed oh my goodness Imagine a landscape just with holly shrubs and boxwood and turf. 
And now you see native plants and uh, vegetable gardens and uh, plants that evoke uh, uh, a land before uh, Washington, D.C. was what it is now. That's the exhibit around the American Indian Museum. So it, it harks back to uh, even before the colonists came. It is gone from basically mowing and uh, tending shrubs. So now it just is a delightful collection of uh, plants that uh, some are tropical because we have some perfect summers for tropical plants and, and summer natives and, and just way more engaging than just turf. Do you know how many gardeners you have on staff there tending them? Uh, I know that we have 67 people on staff right now, but we do have my group, which is the Horticulture Collections and Education group. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm going to make a guess, but and we also have the greenhouses, and so they have a wonderful collection of horticulturists out there that grow most of the plants that we put in our gardens, our annuals, and and our holiday displays, and mm-hmm. uh, uh, some of the perennials as well. So I'm going to say between the two groups, between the gardeners downtown here around the museums and the gardeners that are tending and growing the plants and propagating them up at the greenhouse, we probably have... 40 gardeners about that. Of course, this is the most perhaps visual and apparent portion of Smithsonian Gardens are these beautiful gardens that are educational and restorative there along the mall and around all of the museums. But then there is the the other side of the Smithsonian Gardens. And these are the activities and project and outreach that you take part in as a group every year. Give us a rundown if you can, and I know there's a lot here, Um, and Kelly and I touched on it very briefly as the kind of final portion of the Cultivating America's Gardens exhibition, the idea that the exhibition points visitors in the direction of this rich range of uh, activities and archives available from Smithsonian Gardens. Talk to us about that hierarchy and those resources available to the public and or to researchers with um, permission. For our education that we're reaching out, so I always like to think of it in a tiered situation. Mm -hmm. So we do educate the local community, meaning the community here at the Smithsonian and the, the office buildings around us, as well as the greater community within Washington, D.C. So they get to come and visit us and uh, see the gardens as they are and the exhibits that we have. Then we have uh, the greater community of public gardens in the D.C. area and the national uh, uh, group of public gardens. And we get to share what we learn with our uh, great ability to be able to talk to so many different uh, types of people to be able to help them uh, with with challenges that we all face in public gardens. So we're mm-hmm. educating on that level. Uh, we're also educating on the level that we have uh, affiliates, Smithsonian affiliates all over the nation. And so we can uh, share our knowledge with them and they in turn can share with their community. 
And then we have uh, uh, a group that is reaching out even further uh, so that we work on a global scale uh, with uh, putting our messages and our virtual uh, exhibits together on our website so that it can be reached by any, anyone uh, across the globe for whatever they would like to learn. Uh, we are uh, questioned a lot on our orchids, that we have our orchid collection. So to be able to share that with people from all over the world is just wonderful. Mm -hmm. So you have the hierarchy of you're doing the exhibits in the gardens itself with interpretive panels. You're creating programs for the other public gardens in the area to come and share information from speakers from all over the United States uh, to sharing on our website with the collections that we have as well as um, uh, voices from gardeners from across the country too. I'm Jennifer Jewell and this is Cultivating Place. Today we're speaking with museum specialists and educators Kelly Crawford and Cindy Brown of Smithsonian Gardens, a branch of the Smithsonian Institution. We began our program today learning about Smithsonian Gardens' newest exhibition entitled Cultivating America's Gardens. We'll be back after a break to hear more from Cindy Brown, Manager of Education and Collections Management at Smithsonian Gardens, about the mission of Smithsonian Gardens and its ongoing activities. Stay with us. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back after a break to speak more with Cindy Brown, Manager of Education and Collections Management at Smithsonian Gardens. We'll hear more about some of their key garden outreach, including Archive of American Gardens and Community of Gardens, a digital archive of garden stories. Welcome back. Now, speaking of the voices of gardeners across the country, Describe for listeners the Archive of American Gardens and then describe for them, if you will, the online archive called Community of Gardens. Oh, sure. That'd be my pleasure. Um, the Archive of American Gardens is a collection of images, of garden images, that tell the American gardening story from the late 
the late 1800s and we're still actively collecting uh, information, submissions from gardens all across the United States, private gardens from all across the United States. This collection was, the initial collection was given to us by the Garden Club of America because back in 1914 they decided that it was very important for America to understand the importance of gardens and to save gardens and to keep creating them everywhere and so they took slides, glass lantern slides of these gardens and they used those glass lantern slides to put together lectures that their members could go across the nation to encourage people to garden and support gardening. And now we collect images from them from private gardens so that we can see the full history, the trends of American gardens, what was popular, what's popular now. Uh, The researchers amaze me at what they use the images for. It's it's from what I would think of, uh, what plants are they putting in to, you know, what type of labor could you tell that was available because of the type of designs that were put in. So the archives is an active archive and, and a true archive in that uh, the images are cataloged. You can search upon them. Uh, we have backups of all of them. Uh, Kelly spends all of her time making sure that they're accessible on collections uh, database that uh, anybody can can look at and grab the whole information uh, mm-hmm. via our website. The second one was what we started after I came on board. So you have this collection of Archive of American Gardens, and it's a fabulous history, but it tends to be a history of estate gardens, uh, gardens that uh, have wealth, gardens that were done by important landscape designers. The community of gardens, it's a digital collection of stories that are uh, vernacular stories. They're the stories of my grandmother's gardens who would never have made the archives uh, back when they were starting to collect stories through the Garden Club of America, Uh, especially my one grandmother who used every inch of soil to be able to grow edibles during the depression so that she could feed her family. Mm. Um, So, and it's a way for us to listen to what America thinks is important about their gardens, Mm -hmm. which to me is Oh, so wonderful. That's, I know what a garden means to me. Um, I know how important it is. And I can see it in the faces of other people that visit our gardens. But it's wonderful to be able to hear about that rose that their mother bought for them uh, after the birth of their first child. And that's their physical evidence, the memory of their their mother is encapsulated in that rose garden. Or I worked with a terrific gentleman whose specialty was dwarf conifers, and he has passed away. But I can go out and talk to him every day when mm-hmm. I go out and look at my dwarf conifers. So we're gathering stories like that. What does it mean to be in a a family where the generations have saved seed from their original homeland and brought it over with them and uh, still propagate those plants so that they can share that lengthy history just by eating a, a bowl of tomato sauce or whatever right, it is that, right. that they're, they're growing. And these stories... Uh, I hope you had a chance to read some of them because they are very touching and very informative. Um, it, it, it shows 
what we do, what lengths we take to keep those plants alive and to keep those stories alive and how it helps us as individuals cope with um, a world that can be chaotic at times. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because, um, you know, a couple of things actually are, are coming up for me as I'm listening to you speak. In the first description of the Archives of American Gardens, um, I have had over the year and a half that we've been in production on this program, we've had at least three authors who have referenced the fact that they have done research through the archives uh, at oh, Smithsonian sure. in order to develop their books and um, get the the factual information that they needed. Um, and then as another part of this program, we have something called Dispatches from the Home Garden. And I like to think of that as a sort of story core for gardeners. And this very much reads to me like that, that, you know, when I went online and, and looked at some of these stories and to read about um, a a daughter interviewing her mother about her mother's kind of hippie bohemian backyard <laughs> back garden wedding in the 1960s was just it it really gets to that heart of the myriad ways that um, we we come to gardening and what we get from gardening and that it is this human impulse to to do Yes, that story uh, is the story from uh, Kate Fox, who is very instrumental in keeping this project going. Kate is the brains behind the technology, and she also uh, works with all the people that submit stories to make sure that it's, it is they get the attention that they need so that their story is uh, shared to its greatest depth yeah. uh, with people. So Kate has done a fabulous job uh, with working with those individuals and making the technology <laughs> accessible by right. all of us. Right, right. And um, I believe that I saw when I was doing my research for this that there are currently about 90 uh, stories shared on the community of gardens. So I, I really hope that listeners hear us talking about this and go and submit their stories so that we, we bulk that up from across the country because I think it's um, – while I would love to have every single one of them on my program, I would also love them to go and submit their story at Smithsonian. So um, – so, so when you like as we're talking about these things, Cindy, and I can tell that it's clearly such a part of your own personal history and a part of life and the Smithsonian that you value, what do you feel the Smithsonian Gardens says about the culture of gardening in our country today and, and maybe even over time? Like what what is that statement? Oh, gosh. First off, we are a museum, too. And I think that's great that a garden is a museum. Mm -hmm. We do capture um, history. Uh, We capture science. We capture um, uh, modern uh, uh, conversations, modern, uh, what do I want to say, modern... Uh, not conflicts, but controversies mm-hmm. uh, in the garden in a safe way. Um, we can tell so many stories with the gardens and what's being grown in them that it's easy to reach out to another person. Yeah. 
I always feel like, um, you know that saying that if you're a young gentleman that wants to attract women to go on dates with, you get a puppy dog because it's so much easier to talk to somebody with a puppy dog. (laughs) I think it's so much easier for us to talk to the public as they visit us in the gardens by what they see in the gardens. We can relate to them with one of the plants that we've grown or the style that we have. So I think it's very important for uh, the Smithsonian to have the gardens. Uh, We are the entryway into all the museums. We're the first thing that visitors see. If you come to a building that's stark and bleak, it's gonna give you a totally different impression than if you come to a building surrounded by lovely plants that the temperature even is lowered because Mm -hmm. of the transpiration of the plants that's around it. And so I think that it is important to the Smithsonian to have this, uh, have the gardens as a way to translate experiences if that makes sense. That makes total sense. I mean, even in the, the descriptions of the different gardens that you've you've given to us in this conversation, such as the pollinator garden, this idea that we can talk about things such as pollinator decline or habitat loss or habitat degradation or global warming, like things that are trigger conversations mm-hmm. in, in different ways, to be able to demonstrate how one garden can support and offset a lot of these controversies means you you move from the controversy into the solution beautifully and gently and meaningfully. And you also are able to show that there's more than one answer. Yeah. There's so many different points that can be brought together in a, in a safe way. And there's not just one solution. Yeah. And you can see that in in the plant so much easier than just reading it in the newspaper. Yeah. Uh, so it's a, a very uh, non-threatening way to be able to have conversations of all different types. Rather, if you're having a conversation with a real person or just a conversation in one's head because you see a point that we might make in one of our interpretive panels that all of a sudden you look at it in a little bit different way because it, it's not threatening. Right. What do you love most about your job, Cindy? The people. <laughs> <laughs> I must say, I, I told you about this young uh, boy. He's eight years old and he is he's homeschooled and he's studying to be an inventor. So uh, they had a contest at American History and Spark Lab, and he was one of the winners. And so they invited him to come to participate in this national invention challenge for students. And he actually won in his age category for eighth grade and you, or eight years old. You know what he developed? An app to show children the importance of pollinators. Unbelievable. Can you imagine? No, that's fabulous. (laughs) He's showing me this today. And just hearing it from his point of view was so intriguing. He has a home home base, a home web base. I guess that's what you call it. Home web page. That's it. That's a web page. You can tell I'm a better gardener than technology. (laughs) Um, But uh, he showed me. And one of his categories was safety. And I'm thinking, 
safety. Why is that one of your tabs? And he said, well, you know how important it is to keep our food safe so that we don't use pesticides on the food. I'm thinking safety like we do here at Smithsonian. Be safe. Don't don't use the right tools. Don't work in the heat and all this other <laughs> stuff. And he, he is equating safety to the human safety and how pollinators are involved with that and how you have to keep those plants safe and keep the the uh, pollinators safe and because then that keeps us safe and I thought oh that is so cool so when I get to talk to people about things like that when I get to meet them and and learn their points of view that's the best part of this job that is that is worth all the years of dirty fingernails and <laughs> and uh, hot sweaty days working out there and cold days it it's it's definitely makes it worth it. Thank you so much for being with us today, Cindy. It's been a pleasure to chat with you and a pleasure to learn more about all the resources available there. Well, thank you. It has been my pleasure to share it with you. And I hope everyone does share their garden stories because we want to know what the gardens are out there and what a difference it makes to you and your family. We developed this so students could start to talk to their community to find out how they could help develop green spaces in their community. Mm. And it's really morphed into a much bigger story. Cindy Brown is the manager of the Education and Collections Management at Smithsonian Gardens. Kelly Crawford is the museum specialist who curated the exhibition entitled Cultivating America's Gardens, which opened May 4th of this year and will be on view at the National Museum of American History through August of 2018. An integral part of the Smithsonian Institution, Smithsonian Gardens creates and manages the Smithsonian's outdoor gardens, interiorscapes, and horticulture-related collections and exhibits. Established in 1972 to manage the museum grounds, Smithsonian Gardens extends the museum's exhibits and learning environment in a public garden setting while shaping visitors' overall experience of the Smithsonian. You may have caught Cindy Brown's reference to the Garden Clubs of America being the source of the original bulk of information and historic photo plates that came to the Smithsonian and were catalyst for the formation of the Archives of American Gardens, which in turn was the source for the current Smithsonian Gardens curated exhibit, Cultivating America's Gardens. But you may not know much about the world of garden clubs. There are, in fact, two large National Garden Clubs in the United States, the Garden Club of America and the National Garden Clubs. According to the National Garden Club website and the message from current President Nancy Hargroves, the first Garden Club in America was founded in January 1891 by the Ladies Garden Club of Athens, Georgia. On May 1, 1929, 13 federated states became charter members at an organizational meeting in Washington, D.C. In 1935, the National Garden Clubs established headquarters at Rockefeller Center in New York City. A permanent headquarters building in St. Louis was dedicated May 10, 1958. Today, National Garden Clubs, Inc. is a not-for-profit educational organization headquartered in St. Louis, adjacent to the Missouri Botanical Gardens. 
The NGC comprises 50 state garden clubs and the national capital area, 5,000 member garden clubs, and 175,000 members. Additionally, NGC has 60 national affiliated organizations within the United States and nearly 330 international affiliated organizations with locations ranging around the globe, including Canada, Mexico, South America, Bermuda, South Africa, Australia, and Japan. The group promotes the love of gardening, floral design, and civic and environmental responsibility and helps coordinate the interests and activities of state and local garden clubs in the U.S. and abroad. They organize, support, arrange, and deliver educational and school programs along with a variety of resources to support horticultural and environmental activities. Further, they sponsor many networking opportunities and special projects in which members can participate in order to be of service and help our communities on a local, regional, national, and international level. The mission of the Garden Club of America is similar, to share the advantages of association by means of educational meetings, conferences, correspondence, and publications, and to restore, improve, and protect the quality of the environment through educational programs and action in the fields of conservation and civic improvement. Founded in 1913, the Garden Club of America is a volunteer, nonprofit organization comprised of 200 member clubs and approximately 18,000 club members throughout the country. In an interesting development in the world of documenting and preserving gardening history and information, the Garden Club of America's rare book collection has recently been placed in a new home at the New York Botanical Garden. Included in this collection of more than 700 books is the circa 1841 octavo seven-volume edition of John James Audubon's The Birds of America and the 1771 edition of Mark Catesby's The Natural History of Carolina, Florida, and the Bahama Islands. Through the generous donations of members over the years, the Garden Clubs of America amassed the collection, which was housed in a small rare book closet at their headquarters. To make this important collection available to scholars and research, the executive board in 2016 finalized an understanding with the New York Botanical Gardens for a long-term deposit. The Garden Clubs of America retains ownership of the collection while the New York Botanical Garden pledges to maintain, store, exhibit, and provide access to scholars. Each of the books bears a simple and lovely book plate indicating that the book is part of the GCA collection. The books will also be listed online in the New York Botanical Gardens collection database. Transferring a book collection is an elaborate process. The trip to the New York Botanical Gardens was apparently almost exciting as the collection itself. After being packed in boxes and labeled with a detailed packing slip, off the books went in a secured truck to a special facility in Allentown, Pennsylvania. There, the books were frozen at minus 42 degrees Fahrenheit for 72 hours to ensure they were pristine and bug and mildew free. The process was completed in less than a week, and the books were then shipped, still in the unopened boxes, to the New York Botanical Gardens, where they're being cataloged and intershelved with the larger collection. 
which is all a long way to say, while you may not keep your own garden journals, you can always support the long-term documentation of this work, art, and impulse we love and know as gardens and gardening. And if you can't get to the Smithsonian to show such support, you can always seek out local resources for doing just this. I hope you have a wonderful 4th of July week. Join us again next week as the conversations continue on the many ways people engage in and grow from the cultivation of their places. If you enjoy cultivating place and value these conversations about gardens and natural history, please consider subscribing to Cultivating Place on iTunes or Stitcher, giving the podcast a rating and a review at iTunes, or most meaningfully, share it with others who value these things we love and which connect us. Thank you for listening. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio and CultivatingPlace.com. The program is made possible in part by the Stanley Smith Horticultural Trust. Our producer is Sarah Bohannon. Our communications coordinator is Casey Gardner. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.